Welcome to the People Data for Good podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Hallie Bregman of PTC. Hallie, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me today, Al. Hey, I'm very excited to be talking with you. I am really interested in your work around not only people analytics, but the ethical application of people analytics and how it's affecting the future of work. So for those who don't know you, please introduce yourself and a little bit about what you do there at PTC. Yeah, happy to be here. So Hallie Bregman, I am the global head of people analytics at PTC. PTC is about a 7,000 person global software company. Um, we build software for the industrial manufacturing space. So I often say CAD or PLM for those who know the space. I've been at PTC for about a year and a half and cover the entire lifespan. So lots to think about. We're going through a pretty massive digital transformation and uh, it's an exciting time to be in the field. Yeah. And you've been in the field for quite a while. You've uh helped create people analyst capabilities at a variety of organizations, including Wayfair and, and Toast. And so, you know, let's just start there. You know, how have you seen the evolution of people analytics occur over the last five, 10 years? Yeah, I think it's fascinating because I say if people analytics had existed at the very start of my career, I probably would have gone straight there. Um, and maybe then I would have changed course 10 more times because <laughs> as, as I've done to get here today, but it's such a beautiful intersection of people and data, two things I really feel passionately about. And it's when I learned about people analytics that I couldn't resist, um, but it was still such a new blossoming field. It was something not a lot of people had heard about. Now I joke that I can't go on LinkedIn a day in my life without seeing at least five job postings for people analytics jobs. Um, I was just just chatting with a mentee who um, is interested in getting into the field. And I said, well, there's more jobs than people who have experience in people analytics right. because it's so young. Um, and so, you know, the interest in the field, the demand for the field, I think it was really picking up even before the pandemic, but certainly we all know how that escalated everything. The importance of the people function, the importance of people analytics to help support um, insights and, and strategy around what we're going to do in this new remote world. How is our employee well-being? Are folks feeling connected? Are they productive? All things we've all been thinking heavily about um, and are really, really critical to business strategy um, in this day and age. So I think it's just become a more influential, more mature function, a more in-demand function. Um, and I'm excited to see it keep growing because I'm certain it will. Well, yeah, likewise. <laughs> I, I, I agree <laughs> with you. The future is right for the field. And yep. it's essential contribution to how not only people strategies are formulated, but really strategies on how work gets done and how cultures are created and nurtured. And so today we're going to talk about your background, how you got into the field, where you think the future is going and so forth. But before we go there, how do you define people analytics? You know, what, what is it to you? What does it look like? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think it can be so many different things. I think in its narrowest sense, it is analytics and insights around the employee experience from candidate to, you know, hire to retire, as they say. Um, and I think at its broadest, it includes external market research to understand how other companies are engaging in the market. I think it incorporates workforce planning. So how do we think about the long term and how we get from here to there? Um, and then I also think Something that doesn't touch on as often these days, but I think we'll pick up over time, is really how do we measure objective, objective productivity? Mm -hmm. um, how do we actually see what people are doing and how we can be more objective in our qualifications of what it means to get 
you know, to be successful, to accomplish a goal, to be promoted. I think with all of the data at our fingertips, we're just scraping the surface around what we can understand about employee work. Um, and I think it's just going to, you know, be a gold mine as we dig in. You know, absolutely. Because when I started this work um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was really around transactional data coupled with survey data. And, you know, we aggregated that data on what I would call an event-driven basis. And now we have these technologies that are aggregating this data on an ongoing basis. So our ability to analyze at scale, at speed has elevated you know, a hundredfold. I don't even know if that's even an accurate measure. Yep. But um, right off the bat, as soon as we start capturing this data on how people are thinking and feeling and what they're actually doing, the ethical application of this analytics uh, of the data itself, you know, comes into play. And I know that has been at the forefront of your thinking and your work. So can, you know, if you don't mind, can we go right there, you know, on the heels of you defining people analytics and, you know, why does that need to be a priority today? Yeah. So if I go back a little ways, kind of when I started in people analytics, I really started by focusing on DEI. Um, and this was several years ago, so it's certainly become a hotter topic in recent years, but I really saw this opportunity early on. And I focus there when I think about ethics because there is nothing more critical to ensure privacy, think about security, make sure you're protecting the people than the ethics of doing analytics when it comes to things like race, ethnicity, gender, age, sexual orientation, the most personal aspects of a person's identity. So not just performance, not just recruiting, but really getting into the who do you identify as and what does that mean to your workplace? And so I think very early on, I formed a really strong position on how we should be analyzing, interpreting, sharing, communicating data and results around these analyses. And fundamentally, I very much believe in everyone should get something and some people should get everything, right? But I think the forefront of that statement is actually the most important part, that everyone should get something. Hmm. And I think that the people team formerly known as HR, uh, formerly known as, you know, (laughs) compliance, whatever it was, personnel, has historically been very legally driven, right, and very conservative on what gets shared. We collect a lot of data. We have to keep that secure. We can't tell anybody anything. It is a secret black box, and only us in the know get to know what's inside. And I think we're really starting to push the boundaries on that to be able to aggregate information, still confidentially share insights without sacrificing individual identifiability, but bring more people into the story, bring more people into the know so that folks feel like that they're a part of the co-creation of the story. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that's an important part of the ethical considerations, given that we don't have any of this data without the people. Mm -hmm. And so they're not just giving it to us for free, right? They're giving it to us to improve their experiences, to improve their insights, to improve their leverage. And for that, we must give them something back. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that is, a, I think, a big part of people analytics for me. I think the from a legal and compliance standpoint, which is always a part of it, we've got to make sure that we're following regulation, whether it's GDPR in the EU, which threw us all for a loop. And now every, you know, every vendor vetting I'm in, it's are you GDPR compliant and making sure that we're we're able to remove the data if an employee asks to remove it, that we're able to anonymize it, that it's not still right. Like there's lots of actual security components to it. But I think fundamentally all of that is 
underlying this idea that can we securely, safely, confidentially give back to the people who've given us the information? I, I love that you highlight that because I, I could not a- agree more uh, because workers, employees specifically know that they're generating data. They know it's being used uh, in ways that are helping the organization, but it invites the question, you know, is this data going to help me? Is it going to help my colleagues? And if there's not only words that contend, oh yeah, we're doing this, but actually evidence to show that, hey, this is improving, but that therein lies a challenge of the people analytics function branding itself, sharing its successes. Would you um, agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's why some of the tools that are in the market today that allow for democratization of dashboards and insights are so helpful, because usually people analytics teams aren't giant. Hopefully they're getting bigger and bigger, but but they start small. And to be able to serve so many employees effectively, you've really got to use technology to kind kind of help that. But I really think that it's a big part of the work that we do. Yeah, with that in mind, the people analytics function, which you just alluded to, uh, and the underlying operating models have certainly evolved over time. And the jobs that you're referring to used to be at the manager level. A great many of them now are at the director, senior director level, some even at a a VP level, often coupled with strategy, people strategy and analytics, for example. So I'm, you know, people insight and the analytics that drives that insight doesn't come for free. You know, because you have 20 systems you know, across the employee lifecycle doesn't automatically mean you have insight across that lifecycle. In other words, it takes work. So oh, yeah. in your experience, you know, what are some of the key factors of a capable people analytics capability? You know, what, what, what needs to be in place from a people process, technology, and governance perspective? Yeah, so I often describe it as kind of a, a three or, or four-legged stool. One is platform. Um, and I think this is where people analytics has come a long way in just the few short years that I've been in the field. I think back to when I started in people analytics at Wayfair, I joined a team and everybody was building their Excel pivots off of their workday reports and they were refreshed and then they would sit and wait while it refreshed, right? And I was like, what are you doing? Do you know that the customer teams have SQL servers and Python and automation and tool? what are you doing, right? And so from a platform perspective, I really have seen a tremendous improvement, but I think that is one of the critical skills and components, um, particularly in the early days, right? Once that's built, it usually needs a little bit of love and care to maintain, be maintained, but it, it's kind of the, the foundation. So it's kind of the first thing I take care of. But, but there's that. Second, there's governance. Um, I've also seen organizations where reports, uh, line item reports are getting out to all different teams who need to calculate aggregate metrics. They don't need the line item reports, but it's the only way to do it, right? And so real and all that back in, um, it's helping people see how they can get the same information they need in a safe, secure, confidential way, focus on the insights and the trends, not the line item, right? Not the, well, well, Al isn't on this list and therefore it's all wrong, 
right? There's, there's a reason Al isn't on this list and it either could be a mistake or it could be, well, it's organized some different way and you didn't think about that. And so instead of focusing on the very nitty gritty of Al, let's focus on the entire organization that Al is a part of. What's the trend going on? What's really gonna directionally drive us? Cause it's certainly not one person. And so from a governance perspective, I think it's doing an audit early, again, kind of early days if we're building, which is what I've been doing for the last while here. At PTC, it's auditing what's getting out to the organization. What do I need to pull back? And then what do I need to replace it with to make sure that I'm not interrupting the flow of work, interrupting the you know insights that are already being used and, and in need. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a second part of this tool. So you always got to have some people who can focus on ethics, governance, compliance. I think the next part is analytics. Um, and this is the sexy work, right? This is what I think there's lots of buzz about. Let's talk about organizational network analysis and, you know, all the all the fancy analytics and coming from data science, which is where I, I sat on the customer side of things before I ever made my way to people analytics, um, machine learning, all the rave. Now we call it AI. Everything's AI. It used to be called machine learning before that it was called statistics. Mostly all the same. There's a little bit of advancement. But then you've got to think about your capability of your organization. And so dependent on the capability of the organization, the data literacy, where folks are at, what kinds of business questions are being asked, that's where you kind of put together your analytics team. You still need a platform, you still need government governance no matter what, but you also need this analytics capability, which can be as simple as running a few regressions, doing some cross tabs, really just understanding some basic relationships and correlations, and can be as complex as natural language processing, organizational analysis, and, you know, organization network analysis, and uh, neural networks, or whatever you want to throw in the mix. There's a lot of advanced methodology. Most of the time, you don't need it to get 90% of the way there and 90% of the way there will most often accomplish the action you need to, you know, inspire the action you need to actually iterate on that process or, or whatever it might be. So I'm a big fan of not always needing the most complicated systems. They're, they're helpful for when they're there. But so from a capability perspective, meeting the organization where they're at, baseline analytics to start if your organization is more sophisticated, you can, can jump to some of the sexier stuff earlier on. But I think that's kind of the, the fundamental what you really need. Um, and then the last piece is employee listening. So liaison partnership and um, being able mm -hmm. to connect to folks in the business, whether that's your HRBPs, your chiefs of staff, your operations leads, your executive leadership team. Um, and that also kind of connects to the, the survey strategy. How are you listening to the employees outside of the people you have direct relationships with? Well, th you know, thank you for that. And, I, and I, I like it. You know, what I heard platform governance, analytics, and um, meeting the business where it is business yeah. readiness. And within analytics, the employee listening, the ONA, you know, yeah. all the types of things that can be done, all the all the data that can be generated. So, you know, thank you for that. And what jumps out for me is the skills in which you need to select an appropriate platform. You know, you understand data architecture, interoperability, um, governance, you know, what is the agenda for a governance body? Analytics, I talk a lot about this, analytical diversity. What is the appropriate analytical technique given the business question that needs to be yeah. answered? Because as you well know, with your background, there's a host of solutions out there. And yep. business readiness, obviously, organizational change management, and, you know, which is a different skill in and of itself. So what I'm getting at is, 
leaders don't know what they don't know, right? right. And this uh, field has been created really over the past 20 years. It has evolved, yet I still see a lot of CHROs and the like saying, okay, I'm going to hire a data scientist and he or she is going to go in there and do magic and out it's going to pop this insight. But it does take a systematic level of thinking to make sure these different aspects are being covered. Would you, you know, agree with that? Oh, absolutely. It is far more complex. And I always joke that people are like, but just tell me my turnover rate. And I'm like, <laughs> well, let me tell you how I have to what I have to do to get your turnover rate. First, I have to pull a report. Then I have to pivot the report. Oh, turns out there's duplicates. Let me deduplicate the report. Okay, now it turns out we don't have the right reason codes in this report, so we have to merge it into another report to get our reason codes. Now we've got to roll it all up. Oh, now the organization's wrong because somebody didn't change their manager in their hierarchy, and so we've got to change that, so it's wrong in the system, so I've got to correct it over here. And oh, finally, I can tell you that three people left your organization, right? Like, you don't see that. It just seems intuitive to you. You're like, okay, three people left, so three people left. You can just tell me that. But the systems aren't that clear. And so it's a lot of this system design and really taking an integrated approach because, it, as we know, HR technology right now is incredibly fragmented, hot and growing and innovative and fragmented. We have a million different systems for a million different things. And putting them all together is the hardest part of people analytics. We're in the middle of a project right now, and I, I laugh, but the question was, you know, folks who were in early, early roles, early career in this particular part of the business, you know, when do they get promoted? What's their path kind of moving through? And the joke is like, oh, okay. Uh, yep. So I, like, you want me to, uh, well, these people, we call it a promotion in the system. That's great. And these other people, well, it's a grade change because they got a comp increase. So we changed their grade and that's how we're going to infer. Oh, these people, they don't have grades at all. And it wasn't called a promotion. So how are we going to put this together? So it's an incredibly manual process to just accumulate the data set to be able to answer that question. It yeah. shouldn't be that difficult. I wish it wasn't that difficult, but it is that difficult. Um, and for many questions, it is like that. And so it's a lot of, a lot of uh, mining and architecting and refining before you can ever get to analyzing. Well, this um, you know, highlights uh, an evolution of the space and you know, particularly for those organizations and those individuals who are leading people in this um, organization or, or, or teams that are doing this well, is that uh, they're getting in front of the process. So they're actually involved in system selection. They're actually yep. involved in data architecture and definition. And, and yep. is that what you're saying? And is that what you're engaging in there at PTC? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're doing a lot of uh, transformation. So we're thinking about a lot of new systems. And as we're putting them together, the question constantly is, how do they talk to each other? Right. Mm -hmm. And what kind of, what can I get out from each of them? Because the, the joke was at one point, one of my organizations, our applicant tracking system had no common unique identifier to match it to the employee record system. So I could not tell you if this employee is the same as this candidate. And their emails weren't the same because this was their personal email and this was their professional email. So there's a lot of that kind of work that is going into crafting the architecture of the broader technology suite. So then people analytics is much easier. But especially in organizations early in this journey, I think there is a hunched, you know, a, a hunger to jump right to the finish line. I want the insights. Tell me predictive turnover. Tell me, or, you know, right, like there's so many interesting things this can answer. And 
I just recognize that it takes a lot of time to build that foundation, to make sure the data is in a place where it is trustworthy, it is directionally providing those insights and trends. And now you can start to iterate on it and answer the really robust questions. Well, just to iter- yeah, emphasize this point is when I was starting this work, you know, there were systems being selected and implemented left and right, and it was generating data. And yeah, you know, I'm going in there. I, I've, you know, I, how am I supposed to, you know, there was a HR strategy, there were systems or processes and over in the far right hand column, there'd be how we're going to measure it. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, you know, t- time out. You yep. know, if you want me to measure and analyze this process and link it to other stuff, then I need to be involved at the outset here. And I'm really, really happy to hear you say that that's, you know, where you are. And again, I see others, you know, so if anyone's listening, that's a key, (laughs) key aspect. If you're going to be doing this work at speed, at scale and in a sustainable way, get in front of the problem, be involved in the system selection, process design, all those other things. So I want to toggle a little bit before we talk about the future of work, which I know you have a great narrative about <laughs> and you know how analytics is going to affect leadership, um, not only in the future, but but now it's happening now. But um, for, for right now, I want to go into your background and how you got, because obviously you have the skills, you have the experience. So, you know, what did you study in college? Did you have a passion for numbers before then? I mean, it, tell us about that. Yeah, well, so I always loved math. Um, I was one of those odd people who liked math and English. So it wasn't both humanities or all sciences. It was a little bit of both. I thought I was going to be an author for the longest time. When I started college, I was a psychology major and then an English major with a concentration in creative writing. I dropped that book before I got to the end. Um, but that was really kind of part of where I thought I was going. Um, and so the second, but but nobody ever said you something like computer science, right? You know, I'll I'll stereotype here, but I was a woman. I was, you know, 17 years old. I was taking calculus BC. I loved it. It was great. I was good at it. And then I went and studied child psychology. And I also love kids and I also love people. And so there's certainly something that has kind of come full circle, but I think a little bit of back to where I might have gone had I started in a different place. Um, I studied psychology. I got involved in research my second semester of college. And almost immediately became the stats person. Um, I remember writing my honors thesis senior year, and one of the grad students I was working with, and clinical psychology is very competitive, so they're small labs, and and she was like, oh, we're doing this Sobel test. I've never done a Sobel test before. This was for mediation, which was which was a big thing back then. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing the Sobel test. That's like, she's never even done it before. And that was kind of where it started to click. Um, so I went and worked as a research assistant for a few years before grad school. I was still on the psychology track. I went to grad school. I, I was the methodologist in my research lab. I was the methodologist all through grad school. I took all the stats courses. And at the time I thought I was going into academia and about halfway through my graduate degree, I was still taking my stats stuff and I wrote a grant and I was like, okay, I'm never doing that again. So what, what else, what am I going to do? I'm just going to keep on with my stats stuff. I'm not going into academia. I was never going to be a clinician. That was not my passion. So what am I going to do? So I, I really just dove headfirst in stats. And when I finished my degree, I remember being like, I don't know, I'm just going to network. Like, I'm not taking a postdoc. I'm just going to find my way. And I landed at this startup. It was 10 people um, that happened to use SPSS, which was the software that I knew at the time in psychology. 
And they did surveys in market research with consumer packaged good companies. So it was like my first foray into industry. And I never looked back. From there, I just got more and more technical, largely self-taught. And I just had this passion forever. I never got a degree in analytics. And yet here I am running analytics. And um, I became a data scientist. And I realized at one point, I went and worked at this weather analytics startup. And I had always said, I only cared about methodology. I didn't care about you know, what, what the content was um, until I got to this weather analytics startup where I was like, there's no people. Like I've, I need people. There has to be people in the data. And so that's when I kind of realized, okay, it has to be something around human behavior. And so I did a lot of customer work for a long time. I spent some time in marketing, kind of thinking about P&L, running a business and kind of pulling that all together. And then was like, okay, now I'm ready. Let's go to people analytics. I love people. I love human behavior and I love data. And with that background was really able to bring a lot. Again, I told you the story of seeing everybody in their Excel pivots. That was my opportunity to shine where I was able to say, hey, I've seen how this works elsewhere. And our customers would never accept if they're giving you all this data and they're not getting personalized recommendations back. Mm. Um, The same goes for our employees. And so how do we push this forward? How do we use the same kinds of advanced and cool methodology? How do we use the same kinds of advanced and cool data platform and data system and data structure to make this function as mature, as effective and as reliable as all of the things we do on the other side of our business. And so I fell in love and never turned back. (laughs) (laughs) That is a fantastic story. And I think it's one that is immensely appropriate for the evolution of our, our discipline, because you bring in not only the statistical chops, but you've seen the application in the marketing domain, which is but by unsurprisingly, I don't know if measuring it in years is appropriate, but certainly it's more advanced. Let's just yep. say 10, yeah. 15 years more. Yeah. Advanced. That being said, correct me if I'm wrong from your perspective, it's different. Like you can do uh, you know, certain testing in a consumer and experiments, if you will, in the yep. you know, consumer world that would not be ethical in the employee world. Can you speak to some of those differences that you see? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. Um, I also, before I get answer that question, marketing is such an interesting comparison because I feel like marketing was the last business function that was kind of done by gut feel before before Mm. HR, right? So it kind of went through this data transformation the most recently compared to any other area of the business. And, And then the people team's kind of going through something similar. And so in marketing, yeah, it's, it's totally different. It's, the customers don't have faces. You don't know them. You don't sit next to them every day. Um, confidentiality is important, but not nearly in the same way that it is on the employee side, right? Like I, you know, I remember when I first moved into the people space and I got access to the data and my eyes were just wide, like, oh, oh, this is different, right? This is not the same. You're not just a number. You're a person. I know you, or I know your colleague, or I know your team. I know your manager. Um, And so making sure that the team itself has those kind of ethical standards and can can handle the weight of that information, um, I think is actually a really important part that doesn't often get talked about. But in people analytics, it's the truth. 
And then, yeah, sure, you can test anything. You can't run research experiments on people, right? Not on people as employees the same way you can as do you like this creative or this creative? I mean, yeah. sure, we could probably do something like that if we're debating between showing employees two different creatives, we could run up, yeah. right? But we can't say, well, should we assign you to this manager or this manager? You can't do that. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so sometimes it's a little bit of creativity. Sometimes I always say it's, there's art to the science, right? You can't, when people talk about automation, now we're all going to lose our jobs because computers are going to do everything for us. I say they can't. They can do the math, but they can't do the context. Mm-hmm. Not the same way that we, we know it. And the context is, I mean, people analytics right now is largely still not productized, right? We're not writing production code most of the time. We are doing an analysis and interpretation and an application. And then we may go back and do the same analysis on repeat, but it's not just automated flowing. I'm not getting personalized recommendations or that's my easiest example, but I come back to that one a lot. And so there's definitely something, I'm losing my train of thought here, but something, you you know, unique to the the way we do that. No, and I just want to emphasize a point going back to the marketing uh, domain and making sure this distinction is highlighted and also carried over. Um, You said marketing was formerly done by gut feel and then, you know, data, 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 data. And now there's insight that influences the decisions that are made around product service, you know, application design, you know, advertising spent all that stuff. Right. Yep. So, however, certainty is not the ex- the expectation. Right. You know, it's you know there is a level of confidence. There's there is you know this margin of error. And what I have found in the HR domain is that there's not a broad understanding of this. Hey, this is wrong, but it's not about right and wrong. It's elevating one's level of confidence about, hey, this is actually what's going on. This is the dynamic. And here are a set of appropriate actions to take to, you know, mitigate the risk or take advantage of of an opportunity. So is that how you think about it as as well as looking at the, the, uncertainty within the math, within the data that we're creating, and then then coaching people downstream of how to consume this and in turn take action? Yeah. Although I don't actually think my approach to marketing and people is all that different Mm -hmm. um, in that particular area, unlike others, um, in that good enough, right? MVP. This This is my stance on this. And it's the same stance I took in marketing that I take in people minimally viable product, right? It's what we do on the product side. It's what product managers are taught to do. And yet analysts think they're supposed to explain 100% of the confidence in an analysis. It's not possible. And when it is possible, well, that's weird. But sometimes a 60% accuracy, 50% is random, right? So let's just take that as you got to do better than 50%. But sometimes 60% accuracy, that's that much more information, you know, right? right? And it's never going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. It's never going to be 100%. Now, in other situations, you have enough of the, you know, additional factors to put in the model to be able to explain more like 80 or 90%. But some things you don't, and people are one of those things. So very rarely do I expect to have perfect confidence in my models. I expect to have directional accuracy. And it is the thing that I say over and over and over again, that sometimes people get real stuck on, especially folks who are used to having perfect accuracy. It is 
it just has to be good enough. We just yep. have to know a direction. We mm -hmm. don't have to know whether it was 75% magnitude or 85% magnitude. The direction's the same. Let's do something about it. It is important and actionable. Let's take action. Love it. So let's um, toggle a bit because future of work is something that you and I have discussed. I love your take on it. And so when you hear those words put together, I mean, what comes to mind? How do you define yeah. it? I laugh because I think so many people are saying the future of work is now. And I'm like, uh, no, 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 it's not. Um, we work remotely, right? We don't really work that differently yet. We're going to work differently. Um, and so in the last two years, we've had a shift. We've certainly shifted from working in offices to largely at home. Um, and there's flexibility there. But in terms of having our jobs, we still have jobs in the same way. In terms of the work that we do and the way we collaborate, largely still the same. There's a lot of buzz about skills, and this is something I really buy into. But I was listening, actually, to a prior episode with Rob Cross, um, and I was thinking about, he was talking about the relational component that's left out. So, so if we break it down kind of to the future of work, I think skills are really going to drive the work that we do, not jobs, right? And so I, today, and maybe at leadership, we're still going to have leadership who are focused on an area, but the first 10 years of your career, nobody is going to climb a ladder. You are going to have a set of skills that bring you to different opportunities that give you a well-rounded experience that after maybe 10 years, you're going to be able to settle into being an expert in one area um, that you want to focus on. I think that's really critical. And that's the project-based work. That's the talent marketplace model, right? In fact, it's something that happens often today. Many CEOs have rotated around the business. They've run multiple areas of the business before they ever get to be a CEO. I mean, that's a perfect example of a, of a marketplace model where somebody had internal mobility. Um, I think that's been accepted for a long time. But for folks earlier in their career, they were expected to just kind of go up linearly. I call it the career jungle gym. There's no ladder anymore. So, so I think we're, I, 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 the thing I haven't yet solved the challenge on is how we're going to pay people when they don't have a job. They just have a set of projects. Um, does it mean we pay everybody by their skills? Do we mean, mean we kind of have fewer bands and people can kind of fall into different bands dependent on those skills. I'm, I'm not quite sure on that piece yet, but I do think that's something we're going to figure out. And the relational piece, it's all about your network, right? It's all about the relationships you make at work. That is how you are successful. It is time and time again shown, and it's why I think ONA can be such a useful piece of information to provide insight into who you're connected to and how, why we know men are connected to more senior leaders and brought more broadly across the organization. Women have may, maybe more networks or more salient um, relationships, but they are closer and they're not as senior. So they're not getting that same mentorship or guidance, right? It's that kind of information that a rotational program, um, and there are rotational programs, but essentially that's what an, a talent marketplace and a skill base, skills-based model could provide, will give you the ability to build broader networks. Um, and I think that will actually hopefully help drive more equitable outcomes as we get to the top, because everybody will have had the chance to be in lots of different roles um, and build a breadth of networks. So by the time they, they get into a leadership position, they have more relationships, um, which is definitely an important part of success as well. Well, for what it's worth, I, I couldn't agree more. And thank you for taking that um, approach because I agree. I think 
it can produce more equitable outcomes. It's a more realistic way of looking at work and how to organize people around that work. Uh, how often is it the case where someone writes a job description, they go and they hire a source, and by the time that person gets up to speed three months, six months in, the job is totally different. Absolutely. And so, you know, what skills are, to your point, going to be salient across the evolution yeah. of that, you know, job? So, you know, there's much work, and obviously data can be leveraged to, again, cluster that work, put it in the jobs, you know, roles and all that. So, yeah, thank you for that. And what, yeah, I want to, you also have a perspective on how analytics is going to be core to leadership in the future. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I firmly believe that our future generation of chief people officers are people analytics leaders today. And I think there is nothing closer to the top than people strategy, understanding the kind of the entire employee life cycle. I often say my favorite part of my job is that I'm not siloed to any one area of the people function, right? I One day I'm working on recruiting things, the next day I'm working on performance management, and over here I'm doing surveys on employee engagement. And that means I'm thinking kind of holistically about the entire employee journey, about the entire employee experience, thinking strategically, involved in planning and thought leadership in all of those domains. And I think that really gives us a leg up. Um, I actually also think chief people officers probably are going to ultimately make it into the CEO seat one of these days um, because the rec- there is recognition of the importance of the work that we do. You cannot run a business without people, whether it is operational efficiency, whether it is uh, you know scale, all of that requires good people. And we've known that, but I don't think we've really ever taken advantage of that. And so I think... Maybe chief people officers will be in that rotational program that CEOs have always kind of kind of rotated through. One minute they'll be a chief people officer, then they might be a COO, then they might be a CEO. Um, and so again, I think people analytics kind of slotting into to chief people officer and then go going straight to the top. But I really think it's that holistic thought process. It's not just the data, it's not just the technology, but there is a technical aspect, which is quite advantageous. Um, and many other folks in the people suite don't always, haven't always focused on building that skill. I think we'll see that more as well, though. And then the strategic piece. Yeah, you know, I, I not only do I agree with you, obviously, you and I are not only drinking the Kool-Aid, but we're making the Kool-Aid, so, <laughs> yes. you know, bias, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll I, own that. Um, I, I, I actually, I have to have to share a snippet, but I actually learned that that is a statement that comes from drinking the Kool-Aid that comes from like the 40s or 50s when people of color were asked to drink the Kool-Aid in order to, uh, it was, it was poisoned. Um, so it is something I never knew the roots of, but I, I like to call it out when I see it. Um, and it's usually something people never know. And so I avoid saying drinking the Kool-Aid anymore, but it used to be, well, now you're um, yep, 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 yep. I know. So <laughs> it was terrible, but that's how it, that's how it originated. Uh, I'm going to look that up, and, yep. <laughs> uh, I, uh, but I'm going to trust you on that. Uh, yep. but, but it is the, uh, so we're not making the Kool-Aid. We're not making the Kool-Aid. <laughs> so, but, we're, we're leading the pack. Yeah, insert an appropriate metaphor. Um, so the uh, reality of today is that many CHROs, you know, they've been around 20, 30 years in their profession, and they haven't grown up with people analytics. And they know it's important. 
and they lack an understanding of what they need to invest in to build this capability in a sustainable way. And we've talked about that at the outset of our discussion. So I do believe it's... Um, going to be an evolution. Uh, hopefully it's not going to take too long because the speed of change and the necessity is right here, you know, right now. Um, the pointed question is we see in rare cases, people analytics being leveled at a VP level or an executive level and not just by title. Okay. Yeah. This is underneath me. Is that person in that seat has actually done the work. They yeah. understand the, the, the nuances. And so for, for my money, I, I can't see it happen fast enough. I take a big exhale and I go, okay, the probability of them as an organization being successful just went up, you know, tenfold, you know, yeah. by you know, leveling it at that, at that position. So my question to you is that what you see happening and what you hope to happen, this evolution over time and these people analytics roles being leveled higher and higher? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion around where people analytics should report. Um, mm -hmm. And 95% of the time people agree it should report into the CHRO or the chief people officer, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, I, I describe us as uh, their back pocket, right? Like, I can ju answer just about any question for you at any time. And I can sometimes read your mind before you've even asked the question because I've looked at the data, I've seen the trend, and now I'm going to bring it to you. You're going to be like, I was just thinking about that. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Perfect. You've got an answer or you've got some insight. Um, and so I do think it is incredibly important leadership position. Um, and it's, you know, it requires a team of people of many different skill levels, including early in career, um, kind of building some of those foundational analytic skills, building some of the, the partnership skills. I think usually you've got a, hopefully a good leader who can model a lot of that for their team. Um, but at the helm, you really need someone who, yes, has, has can walk the walk and talk the talk. Yeah, yeah I, I glance around because I'm seeing if I have a book in arm's reach, but I don't, because what you're sharing is aligned with uh, what Norton Kaplan put forth in the late 90s in, uh, in formulating an office of strategy management, which would yes. be led by the chief of staff. So imagine yeah. the chief of staff of the CHRO, you know, and you said it earlier that you're not associated with any one function necessarily. You're looking right. across functions and there's a level of independence, objectivity, and just yes. bringing out you know, the insight. So okay. I, I celebrate what you're advocating and you know, I <laughs> hope that becomes uh, the norm in the years ahead. So yeah, Hallie, it's, guys, it's a pleasure talking with you. We could talk you know, all day. We got just a few more minutes uh, before we wrap, but yeah. you know, any uh, other comments, any other topics that you want to touch on uh, you know, before we adjourn? And we're going to have to do this again, obviously. But Yeah, it's, it's always nice to talk to other, other folks who are so passionate about this space and uh, aligned in vision. I think you know, people analytics is so exciting. Um, but there's going to be even more things to come, right? Mm -hmm. And not just in people analytics, in innovation and people in general, whether it is technological innovation, whether it's process innovation, I think about the way we used to do things and the way we do things today and how much efficiency that has brought and how much space that clears up in our brains to think about other more important things. We're just going to keep getting better and better. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned, you know, for efficiency sake, you, it, 
there's lots of folks who've been in the industry a long time. Um, it may take some time for all of them to kind of fully wrap their head around this. Um, but to be successful, it's all about innovation. And I'm such a technology junkie. Um, we were both at HR Tech last week uh, or two weeks ago at this point. Um, it was nice to be in person again. And it's that space that really excites me because it gives me faith that not just analytics, not just technology, but it's going to give us the brain space to think mm. um, in ways that we've never had the brain space to think before. So I think analytics is a, a piece of that, but there's going to be more to come and uh, I'm here for the ride. Well, we both are. <laughs> so, and, and we have a community along for that ride yeah. as well. So, you know, thank you for your contributions to the space. Congratulations yeah. on what you've achieved at PTC and, and elsewhere. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing this again before too long. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Hallie. Uh, uh, how can people learn more about you and uh, you know connect with you? Yeah, so I'll give the usual answer, but on LinkedIn, I, I love connecting with folks. Um, I share a good bit and also always happy to, to chat. So please engage with me there. All right, Hallie. Well, you be well. Thanks again. And uh, hope to see you in person uh, before too long. Me too. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining the People Data for Good podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the People Data for Good movement, please visit us at pafau.net.